You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Smitty. Bernard, how are you? I'm well. So, what have you been up to? I'm busy. I just got back from a trip from America, and that was fun because I haven't been in a while. just got back from LA. I was actually in Hollywood, and Monday morning, right back into it, trying to beat the jet lag. How, what have you been up to lately? Spool, mostly. I think that's, that's the main thing, and uh, trying to write on my blog a little bit more than normal. I'm trying to smooth out the rough edges and get a little more consistent in writing, but I, I never write enough. But So I'm doing that and still doing the mentoring at JFDI. That's going to start into a new thing, I think, in October. And then the fun thing is I'm actually still carrying on with one of the startups from the last batch of JFDI, Pat Post JFDI, which has been kind of fun. Um, so yeah, staying busy and then just dealing with kids and family. I have two young kids, so that keeps me busy too. So yeah. what are you currently up to in Spool? Spool, we are, you know, we're always busy trying to, our quest for, you know, one, raise money. We're, we're in the market trying to raise our, I guess, official, what you might think of as a Series A. Um, and we're launching some you know, fairly innovative products, I think, in the video space, but sometimes we're not looked at so much because we're only focused on the Indian kind of consumer. So we may not be talked about, but we've done some pretty interesting things with video technology and just trying to continue to build out our ecosystem and our, our kind of plans for world domination, so to speak. But yeah, staying quite busy. So what does Spool do? I understand it's something to do with uh, video streaming. The easiest way to explain Spool is to say that we're trying to build, not trying, we're, we're building the best sort of product we can think of for the Indian consumer. And we, we try to say it that way because sometimes people think we're only in India, we're only outside India. We're actually, wherever Indian consumers would like to consume video that's primarily focused on movies and TV shows and some short-form content that we source. Uh, the idea being that if you're Indian and you're in India, or you're Indian and you live in Africa, or you're Indian and you live in, you know, the Middle East, or you just happen to be, you know, Indian, non-resident Indian living in America, wherever it may be, we're trying to give you the best product for you as an Indian consumer to consume video because generally that we think that market is slightly underserved because you know, they would have to either pirate their things or maybe subscribe to a cable service that might have a few Indian movies, but they won't get everything. And it may be only come on their set-top box. And, you know, we offer you the chance to view the video on the web, on different smart TVs, on your mobile phones, um, you know, via AirPlay, via Chromecast, you know, lot, lots of choices, so to speak. So we are focused on that problem. Um, Everybody always asks us, should we do more than Indian? But we kind of say that, look, India itself is huge, and this diaspora market is quite big as well, that it's plenty to focus on. But obviously, we've built you know, fairly low-level technology that could be used in any sort of video streaming situation. And a lot of things that we've done specific to the Indian market, I'll give you an example. We, we noticed that in India... Not everybody has a great connection all the time, or maybe they jump on the subway and it's not like Singapore and you have your LTE connection piped through the subway. So it could be that you want to watch this movie, but if all you had was streaming, it may not be available to you all the time because you might not always have a good connection. So we offer the ability to actually download the movie to your device and you can watch it whether you have a connection or not. So we, you know, we've done some things that we think are innovative for you know, the label I use is streaming video in emergent markets. It's just that we are only focused on the Indian consumer, so we don't get talked about a lot outside of that space. But I would say we've done some pretty neat innovations, and it's a small team, and we move pretty fast. So that's 
that's what I'm focused on, I guess you would say, with my day job. You know, we're, we're just continuing to try to plot a course towards, you know, profitability to understanding, you know, the best way to serve the market because what we see in some markets is an advertising model works better than a paid model. So we kind of have a hybrid model where it's if you don't want to pay, there's stuff to watch, but you'll see ads. If you do want to pay, there's different stuff to watch and you won't see ads is kind of been our model. I, I think some people call this freemium, but you know, I, I think it's just the difference between advertising supported and not so, advertising supported, so to speak. So you behave a little bit like Netflix if you want to pay for the movie or you sometimes will behave a little bit like Hulu with the advertising model. Yeah, I think the idea there is if you look at the Netflix model and you put that in emergent markets, let's say Pakistan, for example, and the first thing you have is the paywall with a credit card, you're not going to get a lot of users, right? Uh, and it's probably why Netflix isn't there, right? But if you said, hey, all you got to do is sign in and you can start watching movies, but you'll get a better experience if you want to pay, we, you know, we, and that's kind of how we describe the freemium model. Um, I don't think it's necessarily giving away the product, right? We make money on advertising, but the idea is you wouldn't have to have a paywall to get started. That that's how we look at this, and so I think it's kind of like the Hulu model, so to speak. But you know what we offer is different privileges, so to speak. If you had paid, like you you definitely won't see any advertising. You'll have a you know a kind of you can download as many movies as you want. Things that we would cap on the free model. So that's that's the model we've been playing with but obviously as a startup we're learning so we have some other ideas for actually that in different countries you would do different things depending on what the user is like so we're actually kind of building a system that you know in Pakistan it'll do this but in uh, India it'll do this but in America it'll do that and it's largely the same content but it's kind of sliced and diced different ways based on buying behaviors um, something we didn't really know when we started mm. You were just back from LA, so that's where Hollywood is. So Bollywood makes more movies than Hollywood, right? Is that is that statistics to correct? Yes, I believe the statistic is correct. But obviously, some people would say there's a huge difference in quality and cost in, of production. I think both on actual ticket sales, meaning the amount of tickets and the amount of movies India wins. But obviously, the cost of the ticket is lower. And many of these movie productions are maybe only in the millions. Like I think if you get into 10, 20 million budget, you're talking about a very expensive India film when that's kind of baseline for an American movie. So obviously the costs are so much different that I don't know if throwing the, the statistical number around makes sense. But I think everybody who kind of looks at the market knows that there are three very big movie markets. It's America, China, and India. And what we like to say is, you know, America, you see the players there. In China, you see the players. But if you actually go and dig into the Indian market, it's not mature at all, right? But it's quite impressive because Bollywood is quite well known. When I was living in the UK, there are a lot of sort of diaspora of Indians who are still looking to Bollywood for movies. So there's actually quite a significant showing of Bollywood movies, even in in the UK where, where I'm located, whether it's Cambridge or London. So Yeah, and I think actually what you see in the last like four or five years is there's been a crossover effect with a few big Bollywood movies with the larger budgets and even some non-Bollywood stars that have kind of given Bollywood some sort of crossover appeal. Um, I wouldn't say it's widespread, but it's definitely growing. That's right. And given that um, there's a very significant of the tech community in the U.S., is they are Indians, so you probably would also have that market too, right? They probably yeah. grow up with Bollywood movies. Yeah, and, and actually a lot of people don't realize too that the Indian market isn't just Bollywood. It's actually like four different movie sectors that kind of north, south, east, west kind of a thing. And Bollywood's just the biggest and well-known, but a, but the South Indian film, uh, like with the, the Tamil stuff and Telugu, is actually pretty big as well. So it's a, it's a big market. I think the one that most people generally have affinity to for popularity is Bollywood, but there's quite a big movie market. So I think the total number is close to 1,600 or 1,700 films per year. Wow, that's a lot. Quite so, big. Yeah. So take me back. I, I do understand that you're not one of the core founders, but part of the founding team of Spoo. How did that opportunity Yeah, I, I don't even... I think it's just one of those things of kind of being lucky and, and, and you know, I'm kind of a networker and... I think 
I think that this is why I always have written about karma and kind of being nice to people. But it was just one of those things where um, I was at Yahoo and I was actually pretty happy at Yahoo. I mean, Yahoo pays well and got to travel and I was having a lot of fun um, and got to go to the America regularly and China, India regularly. But at the same time, I was, you know, apart from the paycheck, was yearning to build something. You don't really get to build something at Yahoo. You get to help manage things. And so I got my PR. I'm very thankful about that and which gives me kind of the ability to float around I don't need the work permit anymore but you know I didn't have any plans I was just happy to have my PR and it made it easier to talk to startups and other companies because you know they wouldn't need to get me a visa um, and I just happened to, to still be in touch with Mohan which is one of the, one of the founders of Bull and um, he just actually happened to call out of the blue one time when I actually was interviewing. I was actually also interviewing at Vicky, which not a lot of people know about, partially because I was really thought about getting into the video space. I really thought that was an interesting sector that I wanted to kind of get involved with. So I was talking to all the video players. Um, and, and Mohan actually came to me and over a beer one night and just said, hey, you know, we have this thing that we're going to start. You know, we're, we're going to capitalize it ourselves. We have the idea, we have the name, we've actually started to outsource some of the code, but we're not launched and we haven't really hired anybody and we need to get it moving and, and would you be interested? And uh, it was one of those things that was kind of like yes and no, meaning it was, you know, it's risky, it's starting over again, but it also sounded very interesting to, and I think you know this, Bernard, like when you start from zero, so to speak, right, where, you know, nothing's happening, you haven't launched, you don't even have one user to building a system. So I, I was interested in it, but I didn't really know what to do because I actually had a couple different offers and I went on holiday with my parents and um, my, my girlfriend at the time. We just were hanging out in Argentina, actually. Found out my girlfriend was pregnant and found out that you know I kind of needed to do something different for work all at the same time and just decided to kind of go for the spool thing because you know there's, you know there's it's hard to explain all this easily, but... Mohan loves the whole Netflix mantra, not just the site and the movies, but the, you know, if you read the Netflix manifesto and kind of how they hire people and how there's no working hours and there's no holidays and there's no uh, vacations, that type of thing. So that, and that's actually what Mohan practices. So when I had that kind of put in front of me and I knew I had a baby coming, it was just started to be really interesting. So that's, that's how I ended up at Spool. And yeah, when I started, uh, we hadn't launched anything yet product-wise. Right. But you are pretty well known for your days in Yahoo. Remember the Business Insider article about your expose about the biggest, Messenger? The biggest day on my blog was that. Where do we start with that? Hmm. <laughs> I, I was wondering because I think the, that the audience would like to know something more interesting. And I think that is something that we want to archive in history. So the story about corporal. And I don't know if you link to them in the show notes. I've written like five parts to this thing and I haven't finished it because, you know, to be frank, it's it's rather a touchy subject for me, both emotionally and how some people react to it. And I'm careful about what I say about people. But I mean, I'll try to make this quick, right? So what we were doing at Yahoo at the time, and this was the Carol Bartz era. There was a team of people that I was introduced to that used to be my ex-boss from another company and he was running this. And when he handed it over to a new guy at Yahoo, he had introduced me to saying I would be very useful in the Southeast Asian region. And what it was was this thing called IGTF. Yahoo is full of acronyms. And it meant the um, International Growth Task Force. And what it was is a team of people, some of them were even anthropologists and technologists, were saying if Yahoo's going to grow over the long term, they need to figure out these markets that they're not doing well in and how to do well in them. So that would be parts of Southeast Asia like Indonesia and Thailand. And, but there was also even the Middle East and Africa. And these guys had this really neat charter of flying around the world and just studying markets and trying to figure out what they could do with them. And they happened to come to Southeast Asia and they happened to use me as their you know, tour guide, so to speak. And, and then what it came out when we were done is they, hey, we have these ideas for growth. And one of the ideas was location. So just, you know, just the idea of using location. Now, some people immediately start to talk about Foursquare, but I keep trying to tell people this was never about Foursquare. It was just the notion of, is location interesting? A lot of people don't remember Yahoo long before Foursquare had this product called Fire Eagle. That's right. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And it was the idea that you would just be able to let Yahoo 
keep track of your location and then you could decide who to share it with. And so that was one idea. The second one was conversation. So back in the day, some of you might remember that Messenger used to be the biggest game in town, especially in even Southeast Asia. Like I think countries like Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Messenger was like, you know, 70, 80% penetration. It was almost like what Line is in, tai in Taiwan. It's crazy. So the idea was location and conversations was interesting in the emerging markets. So as I was running around meeting people, I just so happened to find this very small Indonesian startup with some very nice people that were working on both location and conversations at the same time, meaning talk about things where you are, right? So we just decided that, hey, if we wanted to do things quickly, would acquiring things be faster than building things? And the idea was yes. And would it be expensive in this part of the world? No. Would it be interesting? Yes. Is it difficult to do this? Yes. So we had some yeses and nos, but we got kind of a green light from the powers that be, you know, almost all the way up to the CFO that said, yes, you could do these providing they're not super expensive and they move the needle in the right way. So long story short, we made it happen and we acquired Corporal. It was very small. And it wasn't about getting this huge ready-made product. It was about getting people on the ground who knew what they were doing and, and allowing us to kind of experiment. I think I've talked a lot about in my post what happened, which is it didn't really go well. But the interesting thing is that the external view of this was Copal the product and how big could you make it. What a lot of people didn't know is that internally that was less the issue. It was more about learning and exploring but also about using this team to build other things because the other kind of statement or test was could we build uh, engineering outside of the core places? And the core places would be like America, India, China. I think there was a little bit going on in Brazil and Europe. And the idea was, you know, going forward, you might need to do some engineering in places that were considerably cheaper and more emergent. And that would also help us with product in emergent markets. So that was. So a lot of people didn't know there was a lot of things we wanted to test with this whole thing. The problem is at the time that we got it all done, uh, Carol Bartz left, right, or got fired, right, and then they brought in the new guy. I won't even say his name because I don't want to dignify his name. And he was the guy that lied on his resume. So then he ends up getting fired. And then there's an interim CEO. And through all this thing, all the regions kind of floated around and nobody could make decisions. But unfortunately, the temporary... CEO that got fired, I think Scott is his name, he decided to shut down all these emergent market activities to say that they weren't really creating revenue, therefore let's just get rid of them and it'll save us money. So suddenly from on high we got, hey, all these things need to be shut down regardless of where they are and what they were doing. But a lot of, what, what a lot of people didn't realize though is, you know, we were actually beginning to work on taking Yahoo Messenger and marrying it with a kind of credits payment model and a gaming container so that we could kind of create mobile gaming platform with payment. Very similar to what you see like Line doing today. Now, I'm not going to sit here on a podcast and say... Okay, okay. Let, 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 let me get a timeline straight. So yeah. when was that? So this, this was right around the time that it all actually broke apart is when we were working on this. So it... it you know, I'd have to get my calendar out to give you like exact dates, but basically when when they announced that all that stuff was getting shut down, that's actually what we were working on. And what it was is Jerry Yang actually was kind of interested in the intersection of gaming and payments and chat and was frustrated that Yahoo was sitting there with all this messenger infrastructure and yet every month it was just going down and down and down. And what we said was, yeah, you're right what would you do with it? And, you know, a few people, I won't say it's just me, said, look, it's really great plumbing and look at the gaming market and look at the payments market. You know, why don't we do something to create an ecosystem for game developers, but the payments and the chat are all kind of in this container. And what a lot of people don't realize is Yahoo Messenger, you know, had a, had a Mac platform, had a Windows platform, had iOS, had Android. And there was actually this thing called Yap, which is the Yahoo application platform that ran inside all these things, and it was like an interface. So the game developers would get this interface, and they would get a global payment engine all kind of together, but it would be inside Messenger. So actually the Indonesian team was the one that was working on a piece of this, which was kind of the credits and how it would fit into a container, and then a team in Sunnyvale was working on the payment engines, uh, which were actually going to be 
run by this uh, Visa group that was they had acquired this payment uh, credit engine. I'll have to think of the name. Um, so actually, this is what we had working on, and what unfortunately what happened is with the kind of dumping of the CEO and all those changes. You know, unfortunately, these big companies, you know, the the organization sometimes just kills things because they don't know how to manage things, and um, it's it's sad because I actually think under Marissa, I mean, look at how many things she's acquired and all the things she's working on. Uh, I'm sure under Marissa, this program would have continued, and they would have kept trying to maybe fix Messenger. But if you you know fast forward to today, who uses Messenger? I mean, you know, do you use it anymore? Does anybody? <laughs> it's like. So now Messenger suddenly dead. Yahoo Gaming platform I don't think is doing very well, and Yahoo never got into payments. So, you know, now whether or not we would have been successful, I have no idea. But I think at the time, and even looking at today, what's happening with like Kakao Talk and Line and a few of these platforms, I do think Yahoo could have done something with Messenger and games and payments. Uh, and I still think it's possible even today. But I think now it's too late. But isn't that the irony? Because the guys who created WhatsApp was from Yahoo. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of people that have gone on from the core messenger team to work on a lot of different messaging things. The Bubble Motion guys actually were a couple ex Yahoo messenger guys, I believe. I mean, you know, I just think it's you know, I mean, the textbook case here is how does someone like Yahoo have these enormous lead market shares? I mean, these guys were some of the first people to open up offices in in Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, Singapore. You know, how do you go from being that on top of things to where you are today, right? That's that's the part I'm really shocked, right? But it, but it has other implications, right? I mean, Corporal's acquisition created a kind of a furor of acquisition of tech companies in Southeast Asia. I think once Yahoo did that, you start seeing companies like Facebook and Google starting to acquire companies around the region. So Yeah, I think it definitely, like, it, it, it put the... This is okay to do things. I mean, the surprising thing is at the time when we talked about it and at the the team that was involved in it, or actually none of them are really at Yahoo anymore, they all said that like, hey, no one's really done this before, to be honest, when it comes to like the paperwork and closing it. I mean, all the the basic things that when you do acquisitions, a lot of people think it's pretty easy. Do you want to be acquired? Yes, here's the price. But you know, you know, there's a lot of legal due diligence, there's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of Making sure everything's possible and that you know everything is legit, um, and, and if you looked at that, no one had really done that yet. So it was a interesting litmus test for can a big company acquire something in the emerging markets like Indonesia? Hasn't really been done. I mean, from the big tech companies doing it type of angle. So I do think we set a lot of firsts, but we didn't set out to do it because of that. It just looked like the right thing to do, and it worked. And I, I do think. You know, I still believe had there not been all the CEO problems and the kind of rudderless ship, I think it still would have happened or they would have even left it alone and it would have prospered. Because I still think today you would have said, hey, would it be good to have 40, 50 people in Indonesia working on product for Yahoo? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I do think, you know, that's something Marissa probably would have continued on. But, you know, in hindsight, Nothing can really be fixed, and you don't know what would have happened, but it was an interesting time, right? It did set a lot of firsts for the region. But it was quite interesting because after that, you have all the chat or what I call communication apps. Yeah, a lot that of came them. up. You got Line, Kako Talk, WeChat, which is and look at what the a lot successful. of their biggest revenue is. It's games, right? Yep. <laughs> I, I just I, I had this really interesting statistic recently. It was something like WeChat per revenue per user is something like two point seven seven per user, and Facebook is just one thirty three, I think, per user of upper value. And it's you know the chat has almost become a platform, right? And I think. Basically, like, and I kept a lot of my notes and drawings, and I know Satya from Copal has a lot of this too. You know, we have sketches of things that essentially look like what you see line looks like today when it comes to the chat and the gaming and actually the news where you get information through it. <laughs> and, you know, and once again, I'm not going to say that we were ahead of our time or that we were on to something. We just looked at a couple of things. Yahoo Messenger had this huge entrenched footprint and a lot of technology gaming was interesting location was interesting so some of the first things that we were getting ready to launch but didn't happen is 
that Yahoo Messenger was going to bring the corporal location stuff inside of it. And rather than having the corporal product, you were going to have Messenger, but Messenger understood location. And you could say, you know, with your Messenger status, you could automatically say, let it show my location. Things that it's not even doing today yet, right? But if you look at Facebook Messenger and all these things, they all have location inside of them. So we were going to take the corporal stuff, stick it inside a Messenger, and maybe not even have the corporal product anymore, to be honest with you. And then we were going to add onto that the gaming and the payments, right? So then the Messenger had, you know, chat, location, payments, and gaming all as a platform, right? And, and you know, I still think it actually was a good idea from just looking at what Yahoo had and looking at where the market was going. Um, the weird thing is, this is where you get into the crazy kind of nomenclature of how big companies work and all the horse trading, you know, at executive meetings where, you know, you put these ideas forth and executives kind of vote for things and executives help each other out by voting no on things and yes on things. And we just kind of lost in that horse trading because you know, at the time Jerry wasn't that powerful anymore and, and Carol was trying to clean up the company. And, you know, it's crazy organizational stuff that it's kind of like what everybody writes about the difference between startups and big companies. A lot of it isn't what you can do, but it's how the organization functions, right? And Yahoo was just super dysfunctional. And I, and I would argue today it's, it's, it's actually not fixed. It's still quite as dysfunctional. It's just that you have a rock star CEO and this Alibaba money and everybody's kind of pretending it'll be okay. But now suddenly you see what's happening. Now that Alibaba's gone public, everybody's kind of calling for Yahoo to do something, right? You think that they can ever fix themselves all of it? No, I think it's going to get broken up. I mean, I, 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 I'm wondering, you know, you have this new activist investor that's what's trying to get an AOL Yahoo thing done. But I think Marissa obviously is amazing. I mean, she wouldn't be where she is if she wasn't. But the interesting thing is a lot of my Google friends were saying that, that this Marissa Yahoo thing will turn out to be a disaster. And if you look at it, it's kind of hard to argue with it. Apart from the Alibaba money, the core Yahoo business is practically valued at what nothing, right? Yep, in fact, it's valued less than less what nothing, right? than the money that Alibaba has raised from their IPO. And I think actually, I actually called for SoftBank that was going to get involved, but now that SoftBank's trying to buy DreamWorks, I don't think they can buy Yahoo too, right? So, but so what, yeah, I think Yahoo's got to do something, right? They can't just continue to kind of. And I think the the investors are going to call for a lot of that Alibaba money to get returned to shareholders which means it's obviously not money she can use to go buy things, right? But here's the funny thing. Instead of SoftBank buying Yahoo, why not Alibaba buying Yahoo? The only reason I think that that one's less a thing is a lot of people don't realize, and this is the kind of juice to get into, is uh, Yahoo runs a bunch of joint ventures, right? So one of them is the Alibaba-Yahoo thing. But... What a lot of people don't realize is that literally just became Alibaba. There's very little of Yahoo running in Alibaba. So it's Alibaba does what they want. They used the Yahoo name when it benefited them, but now Alibaba is bigger than them. It's just an ownership structure. But if you look at the SoftBank thing and you look at the Yahoo 7, which is the other Australia thing, those are actually true joint ventures where they're running each other's code and databases and they're kind of hitched together, and you can't really separate it. So I think SoftBank's got more of a reason to be concerned about it than Alibaba does. That's that's the general take. So, But, you know, maybe Jack Ma just says, hey, this is a great way to enter the U.S. market in a big way by just taking over Yahoo. I mean, I mean he, they got enough money, right? He did mention that he's interested in buying Yahoo when he was interviewed by Kara Swisher on the D conference before they turn record, so yeah, but it's been some time. He's never mentioned it again, right? So, but obviously they have enough money and they could do it. Um, maybe there's a lot of regulatory issues associated with it. I mean, but yeah, I think something has to happen because if you look at the core metrics, I mean, do you use anything from Yahoo yourself? Nothing you know, now. But you used to probably like four or five years ago, right? Probably you're right. I used to you use went, the messenger, uh, the mess mail. Maybe you went to their front page and looked at the news. No, I still use the Yahoo Weather app. Yeah, a lot of people do, right? So I don't use Messenger anymore, and I, I used to even a couple of years ago. And I, I don't, you know, I look at it, I, there's nothing I use from them. That daily news digest thing isn't bad, but I'm not married to it or anything. Okay, so. I got I, I to admit, but I use a Yahoo product that was not built by Yahoo, Tumblr. Yes, and a lot of people are calling for, hey, split that thing off so you don't ruin it, right? That was actually... 
Twitter's been, you know, talking about that the last couple of days. It's like, hey, get, put Tumblr back, right? So the point is people are calling for something to happen because I think the general perceived, you know, theory was Yahoo will get all this money from Alibaba and they use that to buy big companies. You know, and they, I've even heard rumors they could buy Hulu and they could buy big companies. But if the investors say, hey, you got to just return that money to shareholders because that's, that's a better return for us, then they're not able to use that money. Then I think you're going to see people calling to start chopping Yahoo up and you know doing something with it, right? And everybody's just out innovating them, right? In search, now you have Facebook with an advertising platform that's probably going to be more valuable than Yahoo. What do they have anymore? They're just kind of a <laughs> a, a bygone, right? I mean, it's sad, but so yeah, I think they're in trouble. I think they're going to have to do something, but I, it, it'd be tough for me to kind of profess as to what would make sense. They have. Advice from the activist shareholders to merge with AOL. So yeah. that's an option. Which is just brutal. But actually, as of late, AOL is doing better than Yahoo when it comes to just profitability and things like that. So, so. would you see an AOL Yahoo or Yahoo AOL? I don't. I think that's just one activist shareholder. I think the rest of them are saying that isn't going to help either, right? I think they're going to say, start selling the pieces off that aren't core the thing that I'm always shocked is why does Yahoo have 15,000 employees? And everybody who's ever worked there will all tell you that they're really shocked that one thing that she hasn't done is a massive headcount reduction. I mean, she just keeps adding people. And, you know, yes, they need engineers, but I can tell you that they have, for every couple engineers, they have a bunch of business managers who just don't do anything anymore. They rest invest. And then now the problem is that rest investing thing has been more aggressive because the stock's way up, right? So, you know, everybody's been shocked that, you know, why aren't they under 10,000 on their headcount? And, and then you might find their profitability would jump quite a bit, right? Because they don't need all those people to run the business they have now. I think everybody's pretty much agreed that that normal headcount shouldn't be as big as it is. They're in trouble, but, you know, the, the problem is, does anybody care anymore? I mean, not many people care. But yeah. let me let me take a side way. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about your other strength, which is product management. Sure. But I want to sort of talk to you first about the iOS first and Android first, because you write tons of articles on this. Yeah, I, I, I write because I, I find it's interesting that everybody, and I think you've written about this too, that everybody kind of has this very black and white opinion on what should happen, right? And I always try to tell people, because people tend to think I'm an Apple fanboy, and I always laugh at this. I actually carried an Android phone all the way until there was uh, iOS, uh, sorry, iPhone 4. My first iPhone was an iPhone 4. Up until then, I'd carried a couple different Android phones. I had Blackberries. I had Palm Trios. I I've had everything, uh, to be honest with you. I've always, I've always gravitated toward a phone that could do more than just make calls. You know, I had Windows things. I had, you know, one of the Ericsson things that had the OS in it. And, you know, I've always had you know, something more than just a phone call because it made sense to me that you wanted a computer in your hand, right? I mean, and that's what I think of this is, is mobile computing. Yes, I do think the better devices, even right now, I have an iPhone 6, are the iPhone because I just think they're smaller, lighter, faster, and better battery. I mean, even today I was looking at a brand new Android device and my iPhone 6 arguing about scrolling. And you just can't tell me that iPhone doesn't scroll faster than Android. It still does, right? But all that being said... You, you have to look at the business, right? And I think this is what you talk about. What makes sense for your business? And I think everybody, if given enough budget, probably says you need both iOS and Android. And some people will say, and BlackBerry and Windows. But I think we all know that BlackBerry thing's dead now. Like, you're not going to get fired for not shipping a BlackBerry app, right? It's okay now. Um, maybe three years ago you would. Now you're kind of on the fence. Should I do Windows? Should I not? And I've, I've been hemming and hawing this because I actually keep hoping Microsoft grows but if you keep looking at the stats they're terrible so I've, I'm on the fence as to even do you really need Microsoft but if you had a budget and then you had a, a good product I believe you have to do both but everybody kind of has their opinions of what do you start with right and everybody's general you know Silicon Valley you know uh, mature market stances lead with iOS and then other people say Oh, no, you got to lead with Android. I don't think you can decide other than to say, what is my business case? So to give you an example, you know, and I'm mentoring these guys. So I'll just be upfront. I'm not trying to promote them, but they're a nice case study. Um, the Style Hunt guys out of Thailand 
have had a mobile-ready kind of website. And this also throws a lot of water on that theory where people say, hey, you don't need to build apps. You just need to have a good mobile website. The problem is you don't get app store discovery. You don't get any virility from the app stores. And you just can't build as good as product. And I, I'm a big believer in native apps, right? So these guys said, hey, we got to build an app. What do you think we should do? We actually don't have a lot of iOS talent. We have Android talent. But you know, what's the right thing? And if you look at their, their market, which is Thailand, and they're not actually doing payments or anything. They just need users. It makes more sense for them to do Android first. And all, all aside of why iOS first, it does make more sense in their case because it's Thailand. It's a bigger Android market. Um, they don't worry about payments today, so it doesn't matter about the whole payment infrastructure or propensity to pay. It matters is can they get users and do you use the app? Check those boxes. Android makes perfect sense. What do they do? They launch an Android app within, I think it's been about two weeks. I think they're close to breaking the top 10 in their genre in Android for Thailand, which I don't think they'd be able to do with iOS, to be honest with you, because it's much more entrenched. They now have people using the app. They have a great talking point. They can go to their you know, would-be investors and talk about their top 10 charts. And yeah, they're going to get to iOS. It's next, but they did Android first. And I think in their case, that makes total sense. If you look at the Spool case where we said, hey, we're chasing kind of a global diaspora who we want them to pay. iOS makes much more sense. And even today, we get way more payments on iOS than Android, like considerably more, like, you know, almost like a 10x difference, right? But now we have both, right? And I think it's important for us to do both. But I think each and every kind of owner or product manager needs to decide what makes sense for their app. And they can't just say, you know, what I read is it's always iOS first or it's always Android first. I think you have to look at your market and look at your your own needs and your own capabilities and make the most sense. I think everybody will wake up and need both someday, but you got to figure out where do you start. I kind of think that when you try to do iOS first, it's more for a mature market. But when it comes to Android, it's more for emerging market. Because I think the cost per acquisition for iOS and Android users also plays a part in the factor and I, I totally agree with you and it's that more expensive on iOS that's right. right the business case is the part that I do not get when everyone argues on this iOS or Android first because they don't seem to that the products focus is on the customers what does the customers want to access to get to your product yeah and I think the other thing a lot of people don't factor too is that in the emerging markets or let's say the what I like to call the telco-dominated markets. There's a lot more you can do with Android, right? You can do telco billing. You can do bundles. Like carriers can bundle the app. Correct. Carriers can put in their own building thing without the Play Store. I mean, there's so much you can do that you cannot do on iOS that if you look at, say, India, Pakistan, Indonesia, I mean, do that list, or Middle East, you have a lot of flexibility on Android. The other thing that you have is the ability to, you know, push the app without review, update the app daily without reviews, uh, you can reply to your comments in the app store, a bunch of things that I've been calling Apple on that are, you know, I personally think the whole review process with Apple is broken, right? And I think the whole review process with Android is broken, right? But if you look at the flexibility you have with Android as a startup, it's way more flexible. So you can kind of iterate every week and ship something. So I think for some cases, you could make a very strong case that Android should be first, right? You, you can do that. I think if you look at something like a market like India, given that the Android One penetration, I was having this it's conversation huge, right? two weeks ago with Samir saying about the Android One's impact in the low-end Android market. It makes a lot of sense in India to start with Android first. Yeah. Because there's but a benchmark for that $100 smartphone, which you can actually hit with a lot of the apps in that, in that, in that market. And, and if range. you had enough money and people, you would launch both the same day so that you have great coverage. But if you have to pick your battles, then I agree. Like, but if you're saying, hey, I'm doing something in South America or I'm doing something in America, you probably want to leave with iOS, right? I think everybody wakes up and has to manage both of these apps someday. But if you're talking about where do you start, yeah, you really got to look at the market and what you're building and what you're trying to do and make the best decision. This idea that it's a very black and white thing it's kind of silly, right? It's not black and white. But don't you find that all the discussion about this iOS and Android first comes from the first world, which is 
the U.S. I so the, the problems, yeah. the problems they're trying kind of solving is kind of quite minimal as compared to the emerging markets. I mean, I have that conversation with Hugh, right? The better startups that we have seen so far, even from the JFDI, are coming from the emerging markets because the problems are actually much more interesting. Yeah, and I think that's that's the case. And I think uh, there's also that notion of, you know, the, the iOS one, you can put more time in design or it'll look better and that makes sense for the first world. But I think anybody who knows what they're doing with Android knows that you can make a good-looking Android app too, right? So it, it does come from where are you doing this and what are your needs. And yeah, you're right. A lot of times it's Silicon Valley sitting there saying, oh, you should always lead with iOS. But it's silly, right? Because, you know, it's crazy talk. If you're saying, hey, I'm going to build this app for the Middle East and I'm going to have these relationships with telcos for promotion and billing, you can't even do that with iOS, right? So you, right. Would, you would never go to that telco with a straight face and say, hey, I got your iOS app ready. They're going to say, what are we going to do with that, right? I mean, so I think some of these people just have zero experience outside of what they think the core market is, right? But through this whole experience, how do you teach startups product management? I'm very curious about you as a product manager. I mean, I have write articles on product management. Like, I think I've overwritten too much. But I think you have a, also think, a very interesting you know, this, perspective on that too. This is a very touchy subject because everybody has their own view of it. I, I think it was Jackie Yap or somebody. I, I'm not saying names in the sense that I'm bashing. But somebody mentioned that they've been shocked at they go and talk with these startups or these companies and they're not using agile processes all the way through. And I comment, I said, look, agile isn't necessarily for everybody, but, you know, and I will not claim to be an expert here and I won't claim to have gone to product management school. I will claim to have, you know, essentially worked in product management since my early days at enterprise companies and then at Yahoo and then what I'm doing now. And it's kind of the school of hard knocks that, you know, yes, you could be the whole, you do agile and Kanban, or you do you know uh, retrospectives, or you do your huddles every morning, or you all that's fine. Like if it's, I kind of look at this like religion, right? If you if you need to go to church to feel religion, that's great, no problem. Some people just get up in the morning and read their Bible. Other people go meditate, and no one's to say that you're right or wrong. So I think in this project management school of thought, I feel the same way that. This idea that there's a process for everybody or that everybody needs to do the lean startup type of thing is silly. You need to do what works for your situation and your marketplace and your team. And everybody always asks me to say, what do you do at Spool? And I always, oh, I have a hard time wanting answers because they say, like, what do you do? And, I, and, I, and they always look at me and they, you know, flabbergasted when I say nothing. And they go, what do you mean? How do you do nothing? And I'm like, well... I shouldn't say that I do nothing, but I, what we have is this theory that if we hire smart people and we're clear on what we need to do, meaning I know I need to do A in the next month, they don't need me bugging them every day of how to get to A. They need me removing obstacles for them. They need me giving them an environment that they can come and get help or that they can work together or that I can, you know, you know, decide on A versus B or something like that. They essentially need the infrastructure of the organization to get out of their way so they can do what they do best. And if they like to do that at home, great. If they like to do that at the coffee shop, great. If they like to do that at the spool office at odd hours, no problem. If they like to do that at the spool office during 8 to 5, great. The point is, as long as they're accountable and they're reachable, I'm okay with it. And what we do is we try to use Lots of communication tools. We started with HipChat. Like, like everybody else, we're using Slack now. Um, we use you know Hangouts and Google Docs, and we use Asana. We try to cut down on the email. We just try to say, hey, over the next month, we really want to do this. And everybody's clear on what we need to do, and everybody just does it. Could we improve it? Definitely. Could, could, I, could I have more meetings? Maybe, but I don't think it makes sense to. We try to actually have as little meetings as possible. So that's... That's my view on product management, but I'm sure it's quite different than even, say, yours and how you might have run your other companies. So I don't think anybody's right or wrong. It's but quite it interesting you say this because I have kind of evolved as well in terms of product management. I think there is a difference between a product manager and a manager of products. Possibly. Because you, when you are a product manager, I think you kind of really touched on it just now. When a product manager is kind of focused on the product how the market perceives that product and trying to make that product 
the thing that the customer wants. I mean, the, the market fit, which they talk about. But when you become a manager of products, I think there is an, another kind of thinking that needs to go around, which I find that for some product managers, they can't get out of it, is to be able to forget about the products, but focus on the channels where the product is delivered. And the end, the end result. Yeah, and the end result, right? So you get that conflict all the time. I mean, I see it now much more because I went from doing single products for management to now doing Lots multiple products. Yeah. And, I, and, and the way how I started it was within the first month, I just said, I'm going to drop the being a single product thinker to a multi-channel thinker. And immediately that works with everybody. Yeah, and I, and I think there's just no one size fits all, right? Correct. I, I think that's the, the the hard part, right? I think some people, you know, and even people get into like looking at the uh, lean startup and they try to make sure everything fits within that genre and then they don't know what to do when it doesn't. And what I try to tell people is it may not work for you all the time, meaning it's good to be lean, it's good to be careful, but maybe you you're you have to go with your gut sometimes. I, and I, I've had a lot of those kind of conversations are sometimes I just got to go with my gut, meaning, you know, we're working on some things at Spool that, you know, if you looked at the analytics or if you looked at the market or you looked at maybe user feedback, they would all say no. But I feel like there's some things that we should do. And we may be wrong, but we're going to do them anyway. And that's that gut thing. And yeah, I'm going to be held responsible for my gut by the founders. And I, I might be wrong sometimes and right sometimes. But I don't think everything's a science. And I don't think everything can be managed in a spreadsheet sometimes. So we we kind of have this amorphous kind of thing where we say, look, and what we've been trying to do is get better at it. We've been trying to do these, what we call like these 90-day cycles where we say, hey, Here's our, 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 you know, let's paint some big pictures that we'd like to accomplish over 90 days and the people that are largely responsible for them. And over about two weeks to a month of the first 90 days, we really kind of hone them down and we actually start working on them. And somewhere during the middle, we kind of know which ones we're going to go with and we start deciding what's going to finish within the 90 days. I'm sure a more organized or even better educated engineering manager might come in and say, oh, this is a terrible way of doing things. It should be this, this, and this. But, you know, I wouldn't say he's right or she right or wrong more than I am. I would just say that we're trying to do what works for a small team that's sometimes distributed, that knows what they want to build and has the time to do it. As we grow the team, we're already trying to figure out how does this scale. And I think the big thing that, you know, and I've talked to a few people about that sometimes I feel like in Singapore is, it's a lot of startup activity and there's a lot of action on how to get going and how to get started and how to hire people and how to launch. What I keep telling people is I'm missing the, what do you do when you're already launched? What do you do when you have five people and you need to get to 15 people? And, you know, I, I've actually been having some chats with Andy Kroll. I think you know him, Bernard. And, yes. you know, and we've had some, hey, you have this really tight, small Rails team working on a lot of code and there's only been two or three people what if you get funded and you now need 10 people working on that Rails code? How do you do it, right? And that's the stuff that's, that I'm struggling with because I'm not sure, you know, essentially how do you go from where you are to the next phase? And there's different techniques for doing that. And once again, there's no right or wrong per se, but I, I have my own opinions of them and I'll honestly just probably trial and error figure it out. But I think these are interesting topics because it's really tough to put a scientific kind of answer on these situations. Yep. I think it is a different kind of management beyond. I have this conversation with you after the podcast and there are a couple of ideas that I'm actually thinking about, about how to teach people to scale up because I think that people have a very romanticized view of what a startup is. But when it comes to scaling up, it requires more discipline. It's hard. <laughs> and it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's really to hard. really make that system work. And I've kind of figure out a system now for that scaling because I'm doing a 10-man team and scale it to a 50-man. And, I, I, and I'm starting to realize that there are there's some very fundamental shifts that I need to make, even in and making the team extremely disciplined in the way it executes things. It's definitely not easy, right? I mean, it's... it's but, you know, that's, that's life, right? And this is where you, you can't necessarily say that 
everything works or is a one way because you know you you're when you're at 5 or 10 people the problems are going to be different than 20 people like scaling the organization is actually the difficult problem and i and i always remind people that that actually turns out to be the harder problem than the code or than the market fit scaling your own org yeah is is non trivial right i got the inspiration actually from reid hoffman then that's the reason why yeah he does write a lot about scaling the org right. he he basically um he, when he was talking about the story how he picked jeff weiner as his ceo for linkedin he mentioned that one thing that he was really looking for was someone who worked in a corporate environment and able to scale for a few thousand employees and that is hard to find not easy and this is a kind of skill that i mean i'm not going to sell this but you probably have to go through at least one corporate career to figure it out and even that you might not have the real answer yeah you you probably have to have some experience where things have already been scaled right that's right so yeah. you see the systems and then you also put your own systems into that configuration i think that that's the problem that is the real challenge for product management in the emerging markets in this part of the world is how do you scale from that 10 to a 500 man team and yeah, I, and i don't think easily. a lot of people have figured that out in yeah. this part of the world and speaking of that you've been talking about about singapore as an as a location I don't know but you 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 have cited I think someone's article about Singapore becoming the Delaware of Southeast Asia and you also put some emphasis about location. Yeah, I think because I I I've, I've gotten some arguments with people where there's this notion where if you get funded and you're remote and you're working on big problems, you can do it anywhere. And and I think yes, the utopian view is a coder can work from anywhere and if you have this website that's famous in America um you know you could actually be in Honduras working on it yes in theory that's all true but what i keep noticing is that there's a lot of cultural things that that make this true or not true meaning if you look at the majority of the dominant products in the world they're all coming from silicon valley we can argue about this all day long they are right and there's a few things that are changing this that are maybe coming from china um or a few things that have been these phenomenons that have come from other places but generally you know the top 20 of things in the internet i think normally come from silicon valley right but it in theory it's changing but my point was you know there's a lot to location and it could be that you know we we had done some studies and we were working on coprol after the acquisition where we asked people if i built abnc and it looked like this and it did this would you use it and you would get the people to kind of answer you then you would say if it came from indonesia the same thing are you more or less likely to use it okay check then you would say if it came from america we would say silicon valley would you more or less likely to use it and it was amazing like people would choose this thing that wasn't very good that came from silicon valley over this thing that was better that came from not silicon valley i have a you test know. case for that Yeah, you probably worked on some yourself. Right? No, no, no. I tell you the real story. There's one company that managed to do this in the right way. Okay, you know the story of Razer, right? Razer the scooter thing? The, the mouse. Yeah, the mouse. Okay. Every, every yeah. gamer uses it. It's a Yeah, yeah, yeah. The game is that is a 100 yeah. million dollar company. Yeah. But do you know and in Singapore people call it a Singapore company because it was founded by a Singaporean founder. But what he did was uh, was an advice from his angel investor who's a super angel in Singapore who told him here's what you should do go and incorporate Razer in America in Silicon Valley and his angel investor was a former uh, Apex CEO of HP so he was able to help him to hire the guys in the US to help him to scale and Razer is now a 100 million dollar company so Mohan Our founder did the exact same thing with Excelion. So Excelion's one of the big distributed like secure Dropbox solutions. It's actually founded in Singapore. He moved the headquarters to Palo Alto and was able to get it easier funded and build an executive team and sell to people in the enterprise. But it actually started in Singapore. Correct. For the same reason, right? So when people say this isn't true, I just say, look, it's proven over and over again. And when, you know, Otherwise, you know, why didn't, you know, 
Facebook gets started somewhere else. So the point is, I do think location matters. And I don't think you can say, I can build anything from anywhere and it just works. Now, obviously, I'm working on Spool and I hope to even prove myself wrong, so to speak. But I do think location has a very high factor on how things work and their success because of cultural differences, right? But I think the other one in this whole regional play, that the reason I think Singapore is winning the battle, so to speak, to be Delaware. And if people know in America, you'll see a lot of companies are incorporated in Delaware, and it's mostly for some of the legalese and the tax things, right? It's the same with Singapore, right? It's no different than a Thai startup incorporating here. They like the safety net of the legal stuff, and they like the tax benefits. But I do think that Singapore, you know, maybe it's struggling a little bit lately with the cost of living and housing and, you know, hiring and stuff like that. But when it comes to myself, who is a family person, and I, and I, I think family people, as you know, Bernard, have different needs than single people or, you know, people that aren't having kids yet that there's things that Singapore offers you from a, a location when it comes to the schooling and the transportation and the air quality um, that you don't get in some other places that also makes it an attractive place to run a startup, right? You can't just look at the tech side of it. And I think a lot of times, my general conference is people only look at the tech angle when they make these, hey, it's Hong Kong versus Singapore or it's Indonesia versus... But you have to look at more of the tech angle. You still have to live as people, right? You have to find places to sleep, places to send your kids to school. That when you look at it from all those factors, Singapore does look really attractive, you know, as compared to places like where I live in Thailand, where frankly, I just didn't feel it was the best place to raise a family, right? But isn't it the same with Silicon Valley as well? San Francisco is getting expensive, Mountain View is getting expensive, Palo Alto is getting expensive. I mean it's the same, right? What I mean sure. what Singapore is going through is very it's very similar, similar. yes, yeah. and, and all those places are still very successful, right? And I, and I think this more than likely the same with Singapore, that, that despite these headwinds, costs and housing, and that they'll do away. And, and, and yeah, look at San Francisco as a prime example. It's becoming a very expensive place. So now is that still what you want when you have these kind of housing equality differences? I don't know, right? But if you look at what me as a person need, it works for me, right? Um, may not work for everybody, but I do think location is is a heavy to do factor, and this is why I think some of the best stuffs coming out of Singapore that's coming out from a headquarter perspective, not necessarily where you're building things and where your market is, but where you're organizing your headquarters and how you're founding and you know, where your executives are and things like that. Singapore works really well for that, and I think they purposely designed it for that right that's that's what singapore's been trying to do over the last 10 years right this is interesting you pointed this out because i was with a investor recently and he made this joke he says that every every startup from around the region in southeast asia complains that singapore is expensive but you know you follow where the money is. If you want to get an investor or to raise money, you go where the rich people lived. <laughs> so you should be going to Singapore, right? Yep. So why are you complaining to me that I'm not in Thailand and Indonesia because the rich people are all in Singapore? Yeah, because I'm going to go where the money and the customers are. Yeah. Right? So it was really, it's really amazing that he made a comment. And, say, and, and, and I was trying to just play devil's advocate for the fun of it. And, and he just pointed it out to me. Well, San Francisco is like that. Aren't yeah, you telling me that all these rich guys from PayPal and they are not jacking up the, the real estate prices? And then in my mind was right. That's right. That's why they're here, right? So, yeah, and it necessarily isn't the right answer or what people want to hear or the politically correct answer. Or is it, is it great for the, you know, large family can't afford a home in Singapore? I'm not, I'm not going to say it's the, it's the best thing. But if you do look at what's happened in other parts of the world, Singapore is an HQ isn't a bad thing per se right and it's it's i'm attracted to it and i think a lot of other people are but you know this this all hasn't played out yet but if you do look at the raw stats singapore and, and when it comes to startups and and fundings and and how many people are working at them and, and they're, they're spread across the region you have to give singapore the 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 kudos for how far it's come that story is still going to be continuously written yeah, over years to come, right? Years to come. Well, I think that's a good time to get to the end of the discussion, but I'm going to get you back on sometime. I'm pretty yeah, sure we have tons of things to discuss this off. on 
on that. Yeah, and so congrats on pulling together a podcast. That I think everybody's been missing. Where where are my audience gonna find you? So I think the easiest is either Twitter, I'm Dreampipe, um, or my blog, nokpis.com, or it's probably the two easiest places to find me. I've been trying to blog a little bit every day, or at least link to stuff, and I'm always on Twitter, and love to have new followers, and I do reply to people, so don't be shy. Yes, and I know that you, you are one of the most proliferate Twitter people <laughs> I, I don't know. actually have that many followers but i tweet a lot <laughs> no you do have significantly a lot of followers it's, it's grown i mean i got listed in that tech and asia thing and i was pretty amazed at how many i've added because of that but i do think it's a great network for conversations and you know, not getting the whole social network thing the, the great thing about twitter and you know this right you can follow guys like andreessen or gruber and you you know if you tweet something that's of interest to them, they'll reply to you, right? Where, what other framework do you have for doing that, right? That's right. It's the only place where you can touch someone so global yeah. and the moment that they just picked up something that you, you talk about. Yeah. And reply you, to you or retweet you or something. And yes, and then... The, pretty amazing, right? right? Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. Well, I, I probably just have to end my own spiel by saying that everybody can find me at bernardleong.com or at bleongcw or you come to analyze.asia with an S or at analyzeasia. You can also find us in iTunes and SoundCloud and please give us your ratings um, and also feedback. We will hope to hear from you all. So Smitty, thank you for coming Thanks, here. Thanks Bernard. Have a good day. All right, take care.